Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. And we also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're jumping in for the first time today, you can start on day 267. We are officially less than a year away. Yes, about 100 days. Sorry. I was about to we're say. We're two-thirds oh, of the way through. There we go. Sorry, we're coming up on the year mark. Uh, but yeah, so glad you've joined us. If this is your first time or if you're a regular listener, thank you for being a part of the community. Uh, I would love to invite you to send us your questions. There's three ways to send us those questions. One is an email. The email address is infogrove.church. Or you can direct message us on social media. We are we are on the Facebook as well as Instagram, the handle for for both of those is the Grove CH, uh, and we do like to take times as much as we can week over week to answer your questions, whether they're about some of the things we've talked about, maybe something stood out to you in the reading plan, or there's just been a Bible question or biblical times question that has just been plaguing you for the last decade of your life. We would love to take time to share our wisdom and our not non-expert perspectives on it as well. So we'd love for you to do that. There you go. All right. Well, as promised last week, we will begin this week. With 400 years of silence. We're actually doing 400 seconds just to shorten it. So here we go. I'm just kidding. We're not doing uh, that. So we, yeah. So we <laughs> are starting off the New Testament. I've got to say, I'm Woo! really... I am really glad that it lands on a Sunday so we don't have a weird episode where we kind of jump into the New Testament after the old. We are It's a clean break. This is going to be awesome. But as we talked about last week, we're going to start off with just a quick section here on what happened in between because obviously there's 400 years of uh, silence that go on between the closing of Malachi or Joel as the case may be. <laughs> and the and the opening of the Gospels, uh, and we don't have the Apocrypha in our mm-hmm. Bibles because we're not Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, and I think there's there might be another type of denomination that's in there. Know. Anyway, so a few denominations have those in their Bibles. Uh, most Protestant dominant denominations don't. Uh, and again, we've said this a few times, but that doesn't mean the books are bad. It yeah. just means we don't consider them inspired by God. But you know, read the Apocrypha; yeah. it's, a, it's good stuff. Did you say when you meant when we say four hundred years of silence? Did you explain what that means? It's uh, not that like there's just nothing. It's from biblical history and from scriptural history, we don't have anything for the period between the end of Joel, as our chronological reading plan says, and the beginning of Matthew. That's yeah, what we mean. We by don't that. hear anything from any of the capital P prophets. Yes. So yeah, there, I, that's not to say there's nothing. So going I just want to be clear about that, yeah. so that way it's not like, well, wait a minute, what do you mean? Good call. Good call. Okay, so three major things happen, which are important to know about as far because when, you, when you jump from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the world is very different. And you're like, whoa, 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 what happened here? So there's three major events. One of them is a major worldwide event that most of us have probably heard of. It's a big deal. And then the other two are big deals, but they're big deals in Israel specifically. They're not necessarily like something that would be broadcast across the entire world. So first thing that happens, uh, Alexander the Great conquers the world. (laughs) So in between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament, Daniel talks about this. We read in his in his prophecy, he talks about the Greeks coming. Uh, Persia falls to Alexander the Great, and he conquers from essentially Mas- Macedonia to the Indian Empire. He gets to the footsteps of India and all of the um, – I shouldn't say the Indian Empire. I forgot what dynasty was over it. But he gets to India, not fully conquering it. And so this is a major deal. Uh, this is why suddenly everyone is speaking Greek. When you go from the Old to the New Testament, not that you would see this because yeah. we're not reading in the original languages, but some of the things that happen – all of a sudden, we're going from Hebrew origins of words slash some Aramaic origins of words to Greek. Uh, and so, for instance, all of the names that we have in the New Testament, some of these are changed because of the new King, the new ja- the, not the new James, the King the James, new James version, the new James version. I, I should have written it down. I forgot what name, but there's a Hebrew name that switched to James. 
in all of them. It might be Jacob. I think Jacob is like when you see a James in, yeah, look this up so I don't look look like an idiot. Uh, But I believe when you see a a James in the New Testament, it's actually Jacob. Judas is Judah. Simon is Simeon. There's a bunch of names like that. Jesus is Yeshua uh, or Joshua. So that's why a bunch of the origins of there have Greek. Uh, Greek philosophy takes hold. This isn't super, it is. Jacob is correct. Yes. Uh, it's uh, trivia genius. There you go. Uh, Greek philosophy takes hold. This isn't super duper important in the gospels, but when we get to acts and the epistles, that's very important because Paul is going to be speaking to Greek philosophical ideas when he's doing his missionary work. And then the old Testament is translated into Greek and we call this the Septuagint. And so by the time we get into the new Testament, the idea of what is the Old Testament canon is very solidified. Um, it, not everyone agrees with it, but it's at least the idea of what are the what is the law, the prophets, and the in the history books that is solidified, and it's been translated into Greek, which is the common. Or it's not. The, I guess I shouldn't say the common tongue. It's the lingua franca of the world. Or in other words, if you want to get fancy, if you want to get around speaking a language, Greek is the one that you want to know. It's kind of Latin would eventually become that in the medieval world. And then like today, English is the de facto lingua lingua franca of most of the world, where if if you know that, you're going to be able to get around easier than if you know other languages. Okay. So that's the first major event that happens. Alexander the Great just conquers the world. Uh, Second one, the Maccabean Wars. Uh, This is in first and second Maccabees, which are books of the Apocrypha that I was talking about. Uh, So after... Alexander takes over. He dies. His kingdom is split into four. We've talked about this a little bit. Uh, Judea or Israel is ruled over by the Ptolemies with a silent P. So it's not the Ptolemies. It's just the Ptolemies. Uh, And they were pretty chill. The Ptolemies are similar to Persia in that way. They're like, hey, yeah, do your thing, you know, worship, all all your stuff. Uh, However, eventually the Seleucids take over. The Seleucids were a more northern kingdom. The Ptolemies were based out of Egypt. Both of these were descendants of generals of Alexander the Great. Uh, When the Seleucids take over, they're not nearly as chill with Israel doing their thing. Uh, Antiochus IV bans scripture, which, I mean, okay, not great. Uh, He bans circumcision, which is obviously very important to the... uh, to Jewish culture and to into the way that God wants to be worshipped. I even I was when I was doing research on this, I found out that he installed a gymnasium inside in the city, uh, and then so according to tradition, men would would you'd have to be naked in there, and so that's how they would check if people were circumcised, is they'd be able to look. So it's a whole it's a whole thing that's happening. Uh, he outlaws resting on the Sabbath; people have to work. He outlaws keeping all of the dietary laws, and then he installs a puppet high priest. So this is Antiochus IV, one of the Seleucid kings. Not great. And so we read we read about a man named Mattathias, who's an older priest, and he, fin- he finally is like, you know what? Enough is enough. He takes his sons, and they start a rebellion. They get a, they get a militia together, and they, they succeed. They drive the Greeks out of Israel. It's actually pretty nuts. And we don't ever talk about this period of history because when we close the Old Testament— Israel is not an independent nation. They're ruled over by the Persians. And when we open the New Testament, Israel is not an independent nation. They're ruled over by the Romans. So we don't, we've kind of skipped this part where for almost a hundred years, they are, um, they are an independent nation. Once again, ruled mm-hmm. over by the Maccabean Kings. Uh, the most famous of which is Judah Maccabeus, which Ooh. is Maccabe- Maccabeus just means the hammer in Hebrew, which is freaking awesome. It's one of my, I'm favorite. surprised you didn't name your son. I, yeah, oh man. Yeah. Joel, even ma- middle name him. Joel Maccabeus Westerfield. Dude. Oh, forget you, dad. Forget Thomas. I'll text, I'll text your dad. Don't yeah, worry. He'll understand. The hammer's too sweet. Your name, your name is too soft. 
Tom, we need we need to bring in Magabeus. For realsies. Uh, okay, yeah. So the drink, the sorry, the drinks. The Greeks are driven out and the temple is reconsecrated. This is what Hanukkah celebrates. A lot of people know at least the idea of Hanukkah. It's celebrating the reconsecration of the temple and the driving out of the Seleucids. Uh, Judah's brother, Simeon. So Judah, after Judah dies, the rulership passes to, I forgot the name of a brother, but it's another brother. And then after that, Simeon. And then that's when the new king of, that's when the new dynasty of kings starts. These are the Hasmonean kings. Uh, it starts off well, but Aaron, they are kings of Israel. So obviously they go south because, you know. What? They do? No. Because apparently that's it's kidding. impossible to be a king of Israel and just worship God the way he's supposed to be worshiped. Uh, eventually there's a bunch of infighting. And some of the Jews ask Pompey of Rome to come in and restore order, um, which, of course, you know, he's more than happy to do. And that results in Israel being ruled over by Rome. Uh, And if you were thinking Pompey, not Pompeii, that's a city. Pompey Pompey. is one of the first triumvirate, famously the most famous member of which is Julius Caesar. So that's the whole thing that's going on there. So he's but Pompey was famous in his own right. If you're if you're a huge history nerd, you know who he is, at least. Uh, So that's the second thing, the Maccabean Wars. So we have. Alexander the Great conquers the world. Then the Maccabean Wars take place and Israel is independent for a time, eventually back under Roman rule. Uh, The final thing, and this isn't an event that happens after. This is kind of happening all while this is going on. We see the rise of three very different but very important to know sects of Judaism. Uh, So this would be the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Uh, two of the three should sound familiar because when we read the New Testament, we hear Pharisees and Sadducees. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Essenes are never mentioned in the New Testament, but they are nonetheless very important for us to kind of know who they are. Uh, so first off, let's talk about the Pharisees. It's interesting. They're kind of the people's party, which you don't think of them that way. Because when we hear about Pharisees today, we're always talking about arrogant people. Yeah. Um, yeah, a little, too, a little too big for their britches. But in the time of Christ, they were very much considered the the party of the little guy, of yeah. the small person. Uh, they gave equal weight to oral traditions as to written scripture. So that's – and that's going to influence a lot of – like a lot of the kind of laws that we'll read about that the Pharisees had that we feel are kind of silly, they're oral traditions. And that's why they're keeping them is because they hold to these oral traditions as much as they hold to scripture as well. Uh, they challenged Jesus on doctrine. So – and we'll talk about this in a second, but they challenged Jesus very early on. And a primary reason for that is because Jesus is refuting a lot of the doctrine that they teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had relaxed laws in some of the contexts, including on money lending and divorce. So when Jesus is talking about the idea of, hey, you've heard it said, this is a reason for divorce. I'm telling you, no, that's a pharisaical teaching. The Sadducees actually held, no, it was just adultery. The Pharisees are the ones who are like, oh, burnt it reminds me of that Parks and Rec meme, like burnt breakfast, straight to straight to divorce, straight to jail. So that's the Pharisees thing. I don't know what meme you're talking about. But. Oh, you ever seen Parks and Rec? When the sister city comes in, nope. he's talking about Venezuela. Nope. He's like, break the law, straight to jail. I oh. Part of it, but no. It's a great show. Anyway, uh, they, AD 70, and when I say that, I mean AD, like Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, 70, uh, Jerusalem falls. And two out of these three sects die off. The Pharisees are the ones who continue on, and they're the precursors to modern Judaism. So when we read about the Pharisees and their tradition, that is going to feel the most familiar familiar to modern Judaism, or at least I, I should say Orthodox Judaism. Like the not there's there's other types of Judaism today that don't resemble Pharisaical tradition at all. All right, so that's the Pharisees. The Sadducees are the second group. They are more politically powerful and they're usually more wealthy. So these are not, this is not the party of the people. This is kind of the, the high ranking people. Uh, 
Oh, I lost my note. Here we go. Uh, they gave only gave weight to written scripture, and it seems like possibly only the Pentateuch, which is the first five books mm-hmm. of the Bible. So there, it goes a little bit. There's a little bit of debate as to whether they held the whole of the Old Testament canon or if it was just the first five. Uh, the high priest at the time of Christ was always a Sadducee because they were more connected in with Rome, and Rome was appointing the high priest, uh, and they had more seats in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is kind of like the Supreme Court of Israel. They were one of the ruling bodies. And this is where this is who Jesus um, goes before on his way to the cross. He goes before the Sanhedrin. Paul also goes before the Sanhedrin at one point. I was, and I was watching one of the videos on this and he was pointing out how Paul was actually really smart because one of the things that the Pharisees and the Sadducees disagreed on is the resurrection of the dead. And so when Paul is standing before the Sanhedrin, which has both Pharisees and Sadducees on the seats, in the seats, he brings up the resurrection of the dead and then they start fighting. And so Paul's kind of like, he knows he's playing them against each other in that moment, which is kind of fun. Uh, The Sadducees pretty much ignore Jesus until he became politically dangerous. So we see the Pharisees right away, they're very concerned with their doctrine being challenged. The Sadducees are much more chill on this. It's just when Jesus all of a sudden, when Rome basically begins to take notice, the Sadducees are like, whoa, 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 don't rock the boat. And so oftentimes when we read the Pharisees and Sadducees, I think we kind of, and I I certainly thought this as I was growing up. Oh, they're like the same thing basically. And they both hate Jesus. So no, the point of those passages is not that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are similar and they hate Jesus. The point is the Pharisees and the Sadducees do not like each other. But they're united in hating Jesus. Yep. So it, it's, it's, it would have meant a different thing. And it means a different thing to us today when we understand that context. Uh, after AD 70, when Jerusalem falls, they die out. So like I said, uh, the final group is the Essenes. We won't spend a ton of time on them because, again, they're not mentioned in the Old Test or in the New Testament. Uh, but a couple important things about them. I didn't write this down, but they are the, the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran. They, they, that was an Essene community. Uh, they eventually chose to separate themselves outside of Jerusalem outside of many of the cities, and they would set up their own communities on the outside. So that's why some of their stuff is more well-preserved because it's just going to be better than a city that gets burned down every few hundred years. <laughs> so that's the way it goes. Um, a couple things that are going to sound familiar, though, with the Sian tradition. Um, they, uh, Like I said, they established commune living, which means they would uh, pull all of the resources. So you'd go to work, you'd bring your wages in, you'd give your wages to someone and they would go buy resources for the community. They'd go make sure repairs happen, that sort of thing. Uh, we're going to see the early church adopt a very similar model to that. So it's an ASEAN model of where everyone just kind of pulls their wealth and they're giving to each as they have need. Uh, to become an ASEAN, you had to become baptized to do so, which Ooh. is a which is because baptism kind of comes out of nowhere, right? John the Baptist is baptizing, and we know what it is because it's a it's a sacrament of the church. But when you look through the Old Testament, there's not really that much baptism going on. So the, it's knowing, very true, yeah. So knowing what the Essenes do, their whole thing is if you want to become an Essene, uh, you would. Uh, be around them for about a year. You would then be baptized, and then you had to wait two more years, and then you could join in the Sian community. So when John is baptizing people, it would have been understood not that they were becoming Essenes, but at least the idea of a baptism would have been seen as a way to be to join something else and to be set apart. So that's what's going on in those moments. And obviously today. The early church adopts baptism, and and we still baptize today. Yep. That's kind of the symbol of joining the church. And when I say the church, I mean the capital C. I'm a Christian yeah. church. So there you go. Yeah. And I think it's important as we you launch into the New Testament, like we, there is a lot that has happened, obviously, and, and we can only cover so much. Like this is not an episode about the intertestamental period. We actually have an episode um, that we could probably link in the show notes from a previous year where we actually spent time working through the intertestamental period. But it's really important, especially chronologi- chronologically, is to understand 
there's a bunch that has happened that are that is influencing the church and 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 even the gospel in in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so um, that's why it's important to understand. And even even like again the things. And I, I do think it's curious to me, um, and a curious question. I think is a better way to say it. But like to think through the lens of like what assumptions are we making as we're jumping into the New Testament that kind of don't make sense as we read through the end of the Old Testament. Baptism is one of them. Like the idea of living apart is another one of them. Like I think it's really important to see the dynamics at play to understand the cultural antagonists at the time because that's where the Pharisees and the Sadducees come into play. Um, and so I just think it's really important to take a moment to highlight and remember that as we come into the New Testament, we're reading a whole bunch of already foreknowledge today, modern time-wise, as far as what the gospels are portraying. And so it's important to stop and pause for a second and understand there's a lot that has taken place, a lot of influential things in the world and the culture that are, are that have shaped how the new Testament is going to be framed, not because it influences the gospel, but because it's, it's the gospel being presented in, into a different context and culture. Yeah. So absolutely. Uh, so to give it just a 30 second recap, and then we'll jump into the new Testament. The three things I'm going to say, I'm going to add a fourth here. That's Ooh. a little bit different, but the th- the four things to remember that happened in between number one, Alexander the Great conquers the world. The big important thing here is everyone's speaking the same language yep. now. So you can easily get from culture to culture. Uh, number two, the Maccabean Wars. What this means is that the idea of what a Jewish Messiah is, is yep. very much in the head of, oh, like Judah Maccabeus, who like drove out the Greeks and united the us hammer. all. Yep. There's a, yeah, with a sweet nickname. Uh, there's a reason why so many Israelites are thinking, oh, the Messiah is going to be like that yep. because they've seen Look something. Look what he did. Similar. The Messiah is greater. Exactly. Uh, the rise of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. Essentially, when we read about those, it's just helpful to know what they believe. And so, because you can see the ways that they attack Jesus and, the, and you can kind of infer the motive the motivations behind yep. what they're doing. Uh, the last thing I'll say, not super important yet, but when we get to Acts into the epistles, uh, the Roman roads. <laughs> so the Rome, the one thing, not the yeah. one thing, the, the, one of the big, probably the biggest longest lasting contribution that they made <laughs> is uh, the Roman road system because Christianity spread like wildfire massively in part to the fact that it was easy to get from nation to nation because of the road system. So that's another thing that happens in between. Like I said, doesn't play a huge role in the gospels, but when you get to acts and the epistles, it's going to be a big deal. Okay. Enough with that. If you're super bored by the history, sorry, we're going to jump into the gospels now. And because we're doing it chronologically, that means we're going to be in all four gospels for a while. So it's, it's going to be- it's Until November. Be, Till November. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, we're spending the rest of this month and the rest of October in all of the Gospels. Yes, so. that's what I'm saying. So like through November, from now until November, we're going to be discussing the Gospels. It's going to be- just so rad. Yeah, it's going to be great. I love it. Uh, so we get the opening of each Gospel first. So I'm actually just going to read all four because I think they're each going to give us an idea of what the four different Gospel writers are trying to do. Um, so the first one is Mark which we believe is probably the first one written. Yeah. It seems like Mark was used as a source for both Matthew and Luke. Uh, that's just a possibility, but we think that's probably what happened. And by we, I mean scholarly consensus is that that's probably what happened there. So Mark 1.1 1, 1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Done. Yep. So here's <laughs> the thing. Mark. Here's the thing you gotta go know about Mark. Uh, Mark is John Mark. You'll see. We'll see him come up in Acts and some of the Spoiler. epistles as well. I know. He's a, he's a cool guy. Uh, he is a disciple of Peter, and so Mark is probably Peter's recollections of what's going on, and Mark is recording it and sending it out there. 
the big thing that you notice with Mark is he is not he's not messing around as far as he doesn't want the details. He's not going to get into like how the emotions of everyone that's going on at this at this point. He's just going to give you the facts. It reads like a newspaper essentially, uh, and so you can see that with the with the way he introduces the book because literally it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then he just jumps right in. No other intros going on. It's by far the shortest intro of any of the gospels. Uh, the second gospel that we get is from Luke. Uh, Luke is a companion of Paul. So we'll see him come up in Acts and we'll also see him come up in a lot of the epistles. He writes not only the gospel of Luke, he also writes the uh, the Acts of the Apostles is the full name of the book of Acts. He writes both of them. So his intro says this, Inasmuch as, I, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Okay, so Luke is getting at the point that what he's trying to do is he's trying to work with a bunch of different sources and compile together a gospel account that's not just one person's. Um, one person's perspective. So when you read Luke, it's really important to realize that Luke did not witness any of these things. What Luke is doing is he's talking to people who did witness them. He's mm -hmm. recording their stories and he's synthesizing them into a gospel and he's presenting it to a man named Theophilus. We don't know much about him except that we can infer from these readings that he's a wealthy man who is probably financing Luke's mission. And so he's probably a very influential early Christian and, and thank goodness for him because Absolutely. we have the gospel of Luke and we have the book yeah. of Acts because of him. So great deal there. Uh, the next, sorry, I guess the last thing I should say on Luke, he's a Gentile. So he's a non, I don't remember if is Mark, Mark's Jewish. Yeah, Mark is Jewish. Okay, so he's the only non-Jewish gospel writer that we have. So he's coming at it from that perspective as well. He's coming mm -hmm. at it from a very Greek-centric perspective, which is good because you have a gent. Uh, it's kind of the gospel to the Gentiles a little bit. The the book of Luke. All right. Next up, we have John. Uh, John is the longest intro. Well, I mean, Matthew's pretty long too, but I think John is just a little bit longer. Uh, I'm going to read all John of John. John is a lot more fun to read than Matthew. That's true. I'm not going to read intro. all of, I'm not going to read all of Matthew, but I'm going to read some of it, but we'll read all of John. So he says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son for, from the father, full of grace and truth." John bore witness about him and cried out, this, is, this was he of whom I said, he, come, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For, his, for from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Okay, so John's whole thing is, uh, I was with him 
he's God. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, that's what John is trying to get across. Um, you're, and so John is of the Gospels. It, it gives by far the most intimate picture of Jesus that we have. Um, and that's because, like I said, John is in the inner circle. Granted, so is Peter. So Mark and Mark doesn't give us that kind of um, that kind of uh, picture of Jesus yeah. as well. It's probably safe to say that John is the final gospel that we have that was written as far as when it was written. And it, it seems to me, this is obviously all open-handed conjecture. It seems to me that John was trying on purpose to do something different. Uh, I think he would have been aware of Mark, Matthew, and, and Luke mm-hmm. when he was writing. And when you read them, you'll – so. I should say this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. We'll use that term a few times. And I'll try and remember every episode to re-explain it in case someone's jumping in with us. Um, but they're called the synoptic gospels because they are very, very similar. They're telling mostly the same stories from a little bit of a different perspective. Some things are obviously different that they include, that they choose to include or they choose to omit. Um, but by and large, you're going to read those three and they're going to feel very similar. John is kind of just off on his own. <laughs> very it does, And it feels that way too yeah, when you read it. Very few of the stories are the same. It's giving much more, like I said, of an intimate picture of who Jesus is. Uh, half of John takes place in like the last bit of Jesus's life. It's, it's not necessarily trying to give a full recap of everything that happens. It's trying to give it a, a picture yeah. of who Jesus was, which is great. I love the fact that we have both. I love that we have these kind of historical accounts that we can, uh, and they're sorry, they're all historical accounts, but I, I love that we have these accounts of the major points of Jesus' ministry that we can kind of piece together and we can compare. And then we also have this completely different look at who Jesus is that we yeah. have in the gospel of John. Yeah. And John takes on that that perspective of the, the intimacy of the relationship, but also the divinity of Christ. You see more of the divinity of Christ in the book of John than you will see uh, in the synoptic gospels, which is, which is just one of those angles that John is taking is is trying to highlight the miracles and celebrate the the divine nature of God. And even taking the Passion Week and working so much through it, it is at, 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 at an intentional length to focus on and celebrate the divinity of Christ. So, Yep, absolutely. Uh, I won't spoil the ending line of John, but it's one of my favorite ending lines. So when we get there, we'll read it. Hopefully it's, it's your portion of the week's reading. I mean, even if it's your portion, you can read it. And I'll just be like, yeah, it's a great line. I love it. <laughs> I love the way John ends it. Okay. Uh, The final one is Matthew. This one, I'm not going to read everything because you would turn off the podcast if I did. It's a genealogy. Uh, But to give you a little bit of the highlights, it starts off with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, So right there, we see he's tracing him back to David, who is, of course, the great king of Israel, Mm -hmm. and Abraham, who is the father of Israel. Uh, we go through, it's, it goes, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. If we skip forward, we're going to get to Ruth and Boaz, who we might remember from the book of Ruth. Of course, Boaz is the great grandfather of David. So it goes Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David happens. Uh, we're going to go through all of the kings of Judah. So, I mean, I, f- I feel like we don't have to recap them. Just look at the tier list and you can see the entire uh, the entire history going on there. Uh, after that, Jeconiah is the final king of of Judah, or I guess, that's, sorry, that's Zedekiah, but Joseph is a, or sorry, Jesus is, a, well, Jesus through Joseph is a descendant. <laughs> anyway, that, that whole bit gets confusing a little bit. Uh, but Jeconiah is father of Shealtiel, 
who is the father of Zerubbabel, who we might remember from the book of Ezra. So he's the final governor. And then we go from Zerubbabel all the way down to uh, Jacob, who is the father of Joseph, and then who is the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. So Joseph is, uh, spoilers for what I'm going to talk about in like 10 minutes, but Joseph is not the physical father of Christ, but he is the adopted father of Christ. So what Matthew is establishing here is that he is a descendant through through Joseph. He is a descendant of David, and he is a descendant of Abraham. In fairness, through Mary, I believe he's a descendant of both as well, because Luke gets into a little bit of that genealogy. Matthew, if you can't tell from this, because Aaron, what people group loves their genealogies? It's the Jews. <laughs> so <laughs> all throughout the Old Testament, we get them all the time. And so if you can't tell, Matthew is very much writing in the Jewish context of the first century. And all throughout his gospel, what are you going to see? You're going to see him referring back to the Old Testament. He's going to just do, he'll, and Jesus will do something, and then Matthew will say, and this was to this was to fulfill what was written by this prophet at this time, and he'll just go back into the Old Testament for a sec, and then bring you back in. Uh, if Luke is writing to the Gentiles to show the Greeks and 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 people all over the world that Jesus is the Messiah. Or I, I should say, the way I guess the way to phrase this would be: Luke is writing to show that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Matthew is writing to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, and by extension, the world. If that makes sense, so he's writing to convince the Jews of his era that Jesus is the true fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. So there you go. Those are the four intros of what's going on. We're already like a half hour into this episode. It's probably going to be pretty long, but I'm going to try and power through and go quick through my stuff. Uh, So then we get to Luke chapter one. We start off with the narrative portion of the gospel. So now we're past the introductions and we're getting into the stories. Uh, In Luke, we're introduced to a priest named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. While Zechariah is offering incense in the temple, the angel Gabriel appears to him. Zechariah is honestly uh, or understandably pretty terrified because if an angel appeared to me or you, I think we would think it's cool, but we'd also be trembling and on the floor really fast. 100%. Uh, And so Gabriel tells him, do not be afraid, which is going to be a theme we'll see. Uh, Zechariah is then told that his wife is about to have a son and that he should be a Nazarite like Samson and Samuel. Uh, to be clear, the angel doesn't straight up say, make him a Nazarite, but when he's describing no razor shall touch his head, all yep. these different things, then if you're reading this as a, as a first century Jew, you would have been like, oh, he's a Nazarite. Got it. Uh, Samson being the most famous Nazarite. And then Samuel, who I just, I, did, I never knew he was a Nazarite. Oh, really? This year. Yeah. I've, like, I remember we talked about it. I was like, I've never, because I, I don't know. I always think of Samuel as being like really clean cut, but like, no, that guy was rocking dreads yep. <laughs> the whole time. So there you go. Uh, Zachariah. Doubts the truth of Gabriel's message and he asks for a sign, which I, I love because he's basically, hey, how am I going to know this is going to happen? And the angel's just like, okay, fine. You don't get to talk until your son's born. <laughs> and then Zachariah can't talk. And that's it. That's like, here's your sign. No words for you. little Bing, Bill Ingvall humor there. Uh, so yeah, Zachariah is rendered mute. After this, Gabriel... He stays very busy at this point, and he visits Mary uh, in the town of Nazareth. Mary is also afraid, and once again, Gabriel reassures her to not be afraid, and then it follows by this. Gabriel tells her, And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? 
And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the... And, it, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I love the contrast of Zechariah and Mary here because both of them are a little doubtful, right? So Zechariah asks for a sign and his sign is essentially like, okay, well, then you're mute. Mary does not ask for a sign. She asks for essentially, hey, Give me the, like, how is this going to happen? Because Mary's a virgin. Uh, she's going to stay a virgin until Jesus is born. And so I don't know, listeners, if you're not aware of this, that's, you can't have a baby and be a virgin at the same time. That's, that's not how that works. Spoilers. Uh, spoilers for our younger <laughs> listeners. So, uh, but anyway, so Mary asks about that whole thing. And she's given a sign. Her sign is that Elizabeth, her cousin, has a baby. Um, she also couldn't have children for a different reason. For her, it, it, she was advanced in age and she was barren. But God opened up her womb to show Mary that nothing is impossible. So just like her cousin is having a miraculous child, so you also will have an even more miraculous child is what's going on there. Uh, after this, Mary visits Elizabeth. And John and Jesus meet in the womb, and we're told that John leaps for joy when he is uh, when inside of Elizabeth's womb. So really cool there. Elizabeth is then filled with the Holy Spirit, and she proclaims blessings upon Mary. After this, Mary sings a new song that feels right at home in the Psalms. Uh, I won't read the whole thing, but just a few verses. It begins. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things to me for me and holy is his name. So just read the whole thing. I love the different songs that we get. Zachariah gets one here in a little bit as well. Um, really cool that we see multiple people kind of just filled with the Holy Spirit upon the realization of, or upon meeting Jesus or the realization of what's happening and the proclaiming prophecy, uh, singing beautiful songs. It's awesome. Uh, after this, Elizabeth has her baby. Uh, Zachariah is still mute and everyone wants to name the baby Zachariah. So Elizabeth's like, no, no, no. His name's supposed to be John. And everyone's like, ah, okay, whatever lady. Cause they're just respectful of women apparently. Uh, and then they're saying, we'll name him Zachariah. Cause no one in your family has the name John. Uh, finally, Zachariah asks for a tablet or makes some sort of a signal saying, bring me something to write with. And he writes on the tablet. His name is John. Uh, at that point, he is then given his voice once again, and he is also filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies about John being a prophet of God. Uh, this is important because the last prophet was Malachi. I'm not going to say Joel. Maybe it was Joel, but it was probably Malachi. Um, <laughs> oh, Evan. And John the Baptist is going to be the next prophet that's happening. And we'll see, like, it's, he's not necessarily, like, he is pretty much straight up called a prophet. I don't know what I'm saying. But, you know, he doesn't, we don't think it's of him. It's not like the Old Testament prophet. That's the difference. Yeah, right? we it's, don't think of him as being a prophet necessarily. Yeah, he's not walking, he, I mean, he kind of is, but he's. it's not done in the same way that we see the Old Testament prophets act and operate. But it is still a... He speaks on behalf of God. He rebukes leadership. He, I mean, that's what gets him in prison anyway, spoilers. But yeah. um, that, that's kind of the tension. So he is he is a New Testament modern day prophet in that regard. But. Here's the deal, listeners. He's a prophet. <laughs> so we, yeah. I just, we just don't think of him that way. It's, it's hard to remember him in that way because he, there's no book written right. by him, right? That's Thus says God, here's the declaration of God. He's not speaking the same way that Old Testament prophets spoke. Yeah, that's true. At least it's not recorded that way. Uh, so we are then told that John 
goes off into the wilderness after he has grown and become strong in the spirit. So we won't see John again for another like paragraph or so. So if you want to become strong in the spirit, eat locusts and honey. Yep, exactly. And go go into the wilderness. (laughs) So jumping over to Matthew, we see an angel angel appears to Joseph, sorry, in a dream. Uh, I always feel like, yeah, make sure you give Joseph some slack here because he's understandably a little unsure about this whole like, no, I didn't cheat on you. This baby's from the Holy Spirit, right? Like that, that, Totally get it, Joseph. That's a weird thing for someone to say. Um, I love Joseph's heart, though. He's a good man. And so he isn't looking to publicly shame Mary like he very much could have done. Uh, He wants to divorce her quietly and let her kind of go back to her father's house. Um, and, and, and live her life. He's not looking for any sort of retribu- retribution from this. I, I should also say at this point, Mary and Joseph are not married, but they're betrothed which essentially is a more serious form of an engagement. Uh, like today, if you're engaged, you can just call off the engagement. Obviously, that's a big deal, uh, but there's no like legal jumps that you have to work through. In this day, when you were betrothed, you had to get a divorce to get out of your betrothal as well. So this is it's just as binding as a marriage in that way. Uh, but an angel comes to Joseph in, the, in a dream. And he tells him the truth of the matter. And then when Joseph wakes up, he takes he takes Mary to be his wife. So essentially, Joseph is on board. He's had it confirmed that this truly is a miraculous baby from the Holy Spirit. Jumping back over to Luke in chapter 2, uh, Matthew kind of skips over the whole Jesus being born thing. <laughs> we just get like a one sentence and then Jesus was born. Uh, but no worries. Luke gives us all of the deets. Uh, so he begins with a post-exilic style dating where we are told that this took place in the first year that Quirinius oh man, was the governor of, Ju- of Judea and ordered a census. So they travel, the Joseph and Mary must travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, the city of Joseph's ancestors. When they arrive, it's time for Mary to give birth, which she does so which she does in a stable because there was no room or place to, or there's no time to find a place to stay probably. Uh, yeah. So I love the, the style of dating here because much like we read, and we talked about this a little bit with like Nehemiah and Ezra and even like uh, Ezekiel, when they're giving like the specific dates of this is when all this went down. Luke is kind of being the same way. Here's the exact year that this all happened. I also love that Quirinius, Quirinius, I cannot say that name to save my life right now. Uh, for a long time, it was kind of controversial that he even existed. And then it was actually just confirmed recently, like within the last decade, I believe. Uh, we found a tablet that actually states who Quirinius was and that he was the governor of Judea because he was a governor for such a short amount of time that we didn't have a lot of record of him. So people kind of thought that he got made up in the Bible. And then all of a sudden, boom, here he is. So, hey, Bet. it's almost like the Bible's true. Uh, so then this goes down, which I'm just going to go ahead and read because this is one of my favorite passages of scripture. So this is right after Jesus has been born. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and let us see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. 
And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that, that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Uh, I don't have time to get into the whole, like, this is the glory of the Lord reappearing for the first time since Ezekiel prophet, like Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord leave Jerusalem and now it's back. Uh, I just did a podcast with like Spirit 105.3 that'll air in December. So I'll I'll let you know when that happens, but it's, yeah, I talk about it a little bit more there so you can see it, but basically condensed notes, uh, this is a really big deal that the glory of the Lord has has reappeared. It left when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. It hasn't been back since then. And now this is the moment where the glory of the Lord was expected to come back when the temple was consecrated. It didn't come back. Ezekiel prophesied that it would come back when a temple is consecrated. I, I think that's Jesus is the greater temple. Yep. And this is why the glory of the Lord is returning because yep. Jesus is the true final temple. Okay. Uh, we are then told that Jesus is circumcised and he is presented at the temple on the eighth day, according to Jewish tradition. Uh, we see two people named Simeon and Anna who both recognize that Jesus is the promised Messiah and they rejoice at being able to see him. So as Simeon even – it's basically – he's very old and it's kind of implied that he's been kept alive a little bit supernaturally so that he can see this happen. And so when he sees it, he's basically like, I can die happy now because I've seen the fulfillment of God's promise to me. So really cool stuff there. And you, you can – when you read these things – Take a moment and put yourself into the shoes of Mary and Joseph hearing these things said about your son. Because even when you hear like, and he will save the people from their sins and all these different things, when you have all the, like the shepherds are talking about like, no, you don't understand. Like angels in the sky, glory of the Lord shining. They're telling us who this is. Simeon and Anna uh, telling them about like, no, like God told me this is what's going on. It's it's just incredible. Uh, And then we also see that Jesus grew, grew strong and that the favor of God was upon him. Uh, jumping back into Matthew, we meet the good old wise men. Uh, they are men of the stars who notice a strange star appearing. This, this seems to have happened essentially when Jesus was born. Uh, they follow it to the city of Bethlehem, first stopping in Jerusalem to meet with Herod the king. Uh, to give you just the quick spark notes on this, Herod tries to be super sneaky. He's like, oh, a new king is born in Judah, uh, in Bethlehem. Hey, when you find him, can you tell me exactly where he is so that I can go Uh, worship him, wink, wink. Uh, And so the wise men leave like, yeah, sure, why not? And so they go, uh, they give Jesus gifts. One of them is, uh, I can't remember, is it frankincense or myrrh? That's the memorial perfume. I can't remember which one's which. Myrrh. Myrrh, there you go. Uh, We we miss that because we have no idea what myrrh is in our modern context, but it's interesting that one of the gifts of the wise men is giving Jesus something that would be used for his death. It's kind of foreshadowing. That, that's going to be important. Uh, an angel a- appears to them in a dream and warns them, hey, don't go back the same way. Don't go through Jerusalem. They listen. Uh, when Herod realizes he's been bamboozled, he's been duped, uh, he gets very angry and he goes into Bethlehem and he kills every single male child under the age of two. Uh, before this happens, though, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and tells him to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt. And they live there for a certain period of time until Herod dies. I almost said Herod the Great, which is technically his title, but you know, I can't say the Great right after he's killed a bunch of kids. That's not cool. Jerk. So after after Herod dies, an angel once again appears to Joseph and lets him know that it's safe to go back to Israel. So then they make their way up to Nazareth at that point. Okay. 
This is where Mark jumps in. Remember Mark? Who? <laughs> That's another one of the gospels. Uh, so this is where Mark picks up the action and he shows the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist. This is Mark chapter one, verses four through eight. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the country of of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. That's what Aaron was referring to earlier. And he preached saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, so John is very much, he knows his job. He's, he's not trying to make a name for himself. He's not trying to glorify himself. He's definitely not a false prophet. He is preparing the way for Jesus. And, and that is, that's, that's all he does with his life. And there's a reason that Jesus says of, of there's never been a child of, of, of woman, born of woman who is greater than John. So John does his job incredibly well. And that's a great stamp of approval. Yeah. I mean, it, you can't, you can't get much better than God in the flesh saying there's never been a better guy. So there you go. Uh, Matthew adds to, he adds this awkward encounter to John's ministry. So he, it's covering most of the same beats, except we also see this. Uh, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, which is basically ancient swears, uh, who <laughs> warned you to flee from the wrath to come bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones, children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So essentially John's kind Sweet. of, yeah, he's, he's forcing the arguments of these Pharisees and Sadducees. Um, essentially his idea is, hey, you're not special for being children of Abraham. Uh, this is easy to miss. This is a radical thing mm -hmm. because up until this point, the whole way that God is revealing himself to the world is by taking his chosen people and setting them apart. Uh, that's going to change under the new covenant. And John is kind of heralding this in. Uh, but sometimes we can say like, yeah, of course, like there's nothing special now about being like a, a, a son of Abraham. This is a big statement that John is making. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then I love the way that Luke introduces John. It feels like an Old Testament prophet introduction. Uh, so this is Luke chapter three, starting in verse one. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea and Herod being the Tetrarch of Galilee. Also, I learned the other day that Tetrarch means a uh, quarter king. So he's a, he's a king over a fourth of a kingdom. So there you hmm. go. Uh, and his brother, Philip, tetrarch of the region of, I don't know how to pronounce those, and Licinius, the tetrarch of Albaline. During the high priesthood of Annas and Ca uh, Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That, I mean, that just feels right. Like that yep. feels like it's the introduction of a prophetic book. I know. It feels like it's an introduction of a prophetic yep. book. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Oh, I love it. Okay, so Luke gives a much more detailed description of John's ministry. So when you're reading the three accounts, Luke is going to be the longest one. Uh, it also includes that that brood of vipers comment was addressed to more than just the Pharisees and Sadducees at different times. So this is not something he says once. This is something he's saying to multiple groups. Uh, and then we also see that John commands tax collectors and soldiers. So when the tax collectors and soldiers would be baptized, they repent of their sins. They say, what do we, what are we supposed to do? John tells them, don't extort the people. So with tax collectors, hey, take the amount of money that you're supposed to take, but don't 
don't take any more, which is what they had been doing. With the soldiers, he's saying, don't blackmail the people. Don't try and bully them out of their money. Be content with your wages. So John is giving them specific um, specific things to do, specific ways to apply the repentance to their lives. Uh, after this, we get the story of Jesus being baptized. Uh, the three synoptic gospels uh, tell of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. Of the three, Matthew is the most detailed. So I'm going to read that version here. This is Matthew chapter three, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Uh, so in this moment, this is kind of the most famous Trinity passage. And what I mean by that is we see God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit in this one story, very back to back to back, right? Like God, the son, Jesus Christ is being baptized. The Holy spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. And then we hear the voice of the father saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Uh, after this, we get to the story of the temptation of Christ. So again, the synoptic gospels tell us uh, about this temptation, which is by Satan in the desert. Uh, Mark is just a couple of sentences. And then Matthew and Luke are much more detailed where they actually give you, basically Mark is just like, oh yeah, and he was tempted and he overcame it. And then the angels ministered to him. Whereas Matthew and Luke actually give you the details of the story. Uh, both Matthew and Luke specify that Jesus goes into the wilderness at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And then they both show three levels of temptation, although they both chose different ones to be the final temptation. So we can imagine that one of them is telling them chronologically, like this is the order they actually happened. And then the other one is being arranged by theme, which is a very common thing that we would see with a, a lot of books where, you know, we kind of get frustrated about this today because when we have history books, it's like this happened, this happened, this happened. A lot of ancient history is written thematically. And so that's just kind of the way it is. A lot of the gospel writers are not saying here is exactly the order everything happened. They're giving themes of this type of ministry that Jesus did, this type of ministry that Jesus did. Um, so it can be a little bit confusing for us because when you're trying to actually make a timeline, you're having to figure out where everything fits in. But when we're reading through the Gospels, it, it makes perfect sense. Uh, the first temptation is to create breads out of rock, thereby breaking his fast that he's been doing. Um, I want to be careful. Don't just dismiss this. <laughs> so for a moment, listeners, if you're not driving, close your eyes. Imagine how hungry you would be after 40 days of fasting. After a month and 10 days, imagine how hungry you would be. Like, I think the longest, like, actual true fast I've ever done, I think, was two days. And I felt like I was going to die. <laughs> so, and like, And even, like, to this day, when I fast... I don't even do big boy fast that often, dude. I just like, I just do like a sunrise to sunset oh, fast. And by the time sunset rolls around, Ashley's like, what is, what is wrong with you? Why are you so, you why are you so angry? I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm just like, I haven't eaten anything. Imagine 40 days. Yep. Um, this would have been an incredible temptation. So I think we just kind of skip it by like, oh yeah, Jesus doesn't eat bread. Good for him. Like, no, this is a big deal. Um, and I put, think of Esau. Like Esau was starving mm -hmm. and he came back and he signed away his birthright just because of the temptation of having a little bit of food. I also put Jesus is the better Esau. So there you go. It's, a fun, it's a fun way that you can see how Jesus fulfills even the story of Jacob and Esau in that moment. Um, 
But that is the first temptation. Satan tells him, hey, turn those rocks into bread and eat it because I know you can do it. And Jesus says, man will not live by bread alone. Uh, The second temptation, which is uh, the second one in Matthew, although Luke puts this last, is testing the word of God about how angels will rescue him from death. And so Satan tells him, like, jump off of the temple and the angels will rescue you. And the the inference here is basically like everyone will be super impressed. They're going to know who you are, like all these different things. And again, Jesus refutes him with scripture. Uh, and then the th- and specifically the scripture being you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. <clears throat> the third one is well, third in Matthew. And then the second one in Luke is uh, the Satan offers. I almost said the Satan because like I'm but the Satan. this isn't Job. Uh, Satan offers. Jesus control over over all of the kingdoms of the earth, essentially establishing himself as like you can you can have this entire domain, uh, and Jesus refutes this with just essentially saying that we will worship God alone. So really cool, really cool that Satan actually quotes scripture to Jesus, and Jesus refutes him with the correct interpretation of scripture. So cool, cool beans there. Uh, the Gospel of John. When we go into uh, chapter one, it gives us even more insight into the ministry of John the Baptist. So we're going to kind of go back in time a little bit. Uh, we know that he has been asked if the Messiah, if he is the Messiah, Elijah, or the prophet. He answers no to all three. Um, I specify the because some. I, it's very easy for me to read this as: Are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you a prophet? No, he doesn't say a prophet. It's the prophet, which mm-hmm. is another thing that was lo- they're looking forward to. Um, John answers no to all three. They're, and they tell him like, okay, well, so I guess in verse 22. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John is basically saying, that's me. Like that, that prophecy that Isaiah was giving, that's who I am. Uh, when John sees Jesus next, he declares, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he shares a testimony of what happened when he baptized Jesus. So remember this is taking place after, so this is taking place after John baptizes Jesus, John baptizes him. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Uh, I mean, maybe a little bit more. I don't remember if he comes back out of the, he fasts for 40 days and he's in the wilderness. Then he comes back out and John's like, Hey, that's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, after this, it's time for Jesus to begin his ministry in earnest. And I, I, I'm, what I mean by that is he's going to start calling his disciples. Miracles are about to start going down. This is kind of when we think of the ministry of Jesus, this is kind of where it starts. <coughs> Sorry, listeners. Uh, he calls some disciples. The first two were already disciples of John. So they hear John say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And like, oh, we should, we should go follow him. I'm out, John. Yeah. And, and basically, and I get the, like, John's basically like, yeah, yeah, t- yes, go follow him, please, by all means. So John's not like losing his disciples and getting mad at Jesus about this. Come back here. Yeah, you're my disciples. Uh, and so we find out that one of them is Andrew, who is the brother of Peter. And the other one is probably John. And we say that because he's not named. And so John doesn't name himself in the gospel of John. But he calls himself the beloved. Yeah, he calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. (laughs) So, uh, but yeah, so probably because he's not giving the name, we can infer that Andrew and John were disciples of John the Baptist. And then they both bring their brothers into the fold when they find out that they found the Messiah. Andrew's brother, of course, being Peter and John's brother being James, uh, the son of Zebedee. So there you go. 
Uh, sorry. Well, Peter, I should say Simon, when you read this, <laughs> that's yeah. who it is. And then he'll say like, you'll be called Peter. Uh, we then see the call of Philip and Nathaniel and Nathaniel is probably my favorite call of any of the disciples. So I'm just going to read that really quick. Uh, it says the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. And Philip does. Okay, cool. So uh, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. I mean, I, I love it because like there's the sarcastic, like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You're like, no, go on, check it out. Like, it's going to be awesome. And then I, I love it because it's so open because we have no idea yeah. what is going on in Nathaniel's mind. We just like, uh, uh, um, I, I've heard a pastor say like, what was happening under that fig tree that all of a sudden Nathaniel's like, um, like he, he's just completely convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. Um, I love the way The Chosen, which is like that the, the TV show. I love the way they they do this. Um, obviously, it's a fictionalized version because you, we don't know what was happening. But I love the way they set up the story and kind of make a plausible idea of maybe this is what Jesus was saying in that moment. Um, but either way, Nathaniel is completely convinced. All that, that's all Jesus had to say is, "I saw you under the fig tree," and then he uh, he says, "You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel." So really cool there. Uh, John chapter two tells the story of Jesus' first miracle at the wedding of Cana. Uh, I'm going to kind of skim over this. I, th I think it's a story that a lot of us know, but Jesus and his disciples go to a wedding. Uh, they're running out of wine, which back then would have been, sorry, weddings also lasted for multiple days back then. Uh, but they're running out of wine. This would have been a sign of shame because basically it means you can't afford enough wine to, to feed your guests. Uh, they Mary brings him back. Jesus is like, hey, it's not my time. And Mary just is like, Hey, do whatever he says and walks away. She doesn't even address it. So it's a real mother-son relationship there. Uh, and Jesus turns water into wine. And it's it's wine that's so good that the party goers say, like, hey, you're supposed to save the you're supposed to save the worst line, wine for later, because people mm -hmm. are so drunk they're not even gonna notice that it's bad. But you save the best wine for last. So there you go. That's Jesus' actual first miracle that he does. After this, Jesus goes to the temple as part of the Passover celebration, and he is not happy about what he sees. The temple is meant to be the house of God and not a house of trade. Um, so he sees people offering, um, not offering sacrifice. He sees people selling animals to offer for sacrifice. Uh, the inference kind of being that they're gouging people, that they're overcharging all these different things. Uh, Jesus flips out. Literally, he flips the tables <laughs> uh, and he drives out the money changers. And when he is asked about his authority to do this, Jesus gives his first of many cryptic hints as to his true purpose. Uh, so this is John chapter two, verses 18 through 25. And it says, so Jesus said to him, oh, sorry. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. 
but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So th- yeah, thanks, John. Like sometimes John does that where it's like, yeah, we, we get it. Like we know, but you know, I guess you don't want people to miss it. Uh, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this spoilers and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all the people and needed no one to, no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So we, and this is a weird thing that we get in the early, in the early parts of the gospel. Jesus is not revealing fully who he is right away. Um, to his disciples, he, he pretty much is. But to the people around, he's not saying, hey, by the way, I'm God in the flesh. That comes a little bit later. But you kind of get the idea that Jesus, he knows what's going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. And so he has a certain amount of time that he wants to be doing his ministry. And then he's eventually going to reveal and he knows that all all heck is going to break loose when he does. So oh, there's that. Oh, snap. Okay, listeners, boy, I'm sorry. We're an hour in and I just finished my portion. I'm sorry. Um, before we jump into Aaron's portion of the rest of the Gospels, just you know, maybe take a moment to leave a five-star review if you've been liking this episode and the other episodes. <laughs> sorry we went long, but please sorry. leave a five-star. Sorry this one's longer. Hopefully you're enjoying it. Uh, Aaron, what's what's going on in John chapter three? Well, and, and here's the deal. We asked for the reviews, not because it strokes our ego, but because it does help grow the community, and it's just another level of engagement to get the message out and and help spread the gospel. It's a way of doing that too. So we appreciate you doing that. We appreciate the five-star reviews we see coming in, whether Apple Spot or Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, so thanks for being a part of it. Uh, we are continuing in the book of John where we see chapter three uh, is a story of a man named Nicodemus. Uh, he's asked, he is a Pharisee. He is one of the religious leaders. Uh, and he's asked, Jesus is asked point blank, what does it mean to be born again? Uh, and so we get this in in Chapter three, uh, verses three through eight, it says this, Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked, can he enter his mother's womb for a second time and be born? So you, you see in this moment, the Pharisaic challenge of understanding what exactly are you saying, Jesus? This isn't computing from a logical standpoint. Um, and so Jesus is, is drawing in the Pharisaic perspective but he's, he's challenging, or not challenging, he's presenting the gospel. And he says this in verse 5, he says, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh, but whatever is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. And then he says this, The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And it's interesting because, and I bring this up, because it's a confusing concept if we're not, if we're not stepping back and thinking, considering what is being said, um, the illustration here that Jesus uses is actually an analogy between the wind and spirit, because the wind and and spirit translate to the same Greek and Hebrew words. Uh, so in the Greek, the word used here for spirit and wind is pneuma, and the the Hebrew word is ruach, and it's it's the same word that's translated both wind and spirit. So he's in essence, Jesus is saying the wind's origin is invisible, but you can observe its effects. It's the same with those born of the Spirit. So there is something about the byproduct of the Spirit's transformative work in the believer. That's what it means to be born again in the Spirit. Uh, and so that's the conversation he's having with Nicodemus. Um, we also get a very familiar passage in the church world. Uh, and in my childhood, was a very familiar passage in the world in general. Uh, it's not so much today, just to be honest with you. Because if you go of the to In and Out, it's on the bottom. If of If you all go the cups. to In and Out, it's in the bottom of all the cups. Yes, but not very many people see it. Um, 
But it is this John 3.16. Uh, but I would also say you have to put John 3.17 in this conversation too. Um, we've put a lot of emphasis on 3.16, but I think we've neglected 3.17. So it's important as you read through this, this is the same discussion that Jesus is drawing out and developing from the conversation with Nicodemus, uh, where it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's that familiar verse in John 3.16. But John 3.17 follows up and says, you know, the idea that, that the son did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that all the world might be saved through him. It's a both-and conversation that I think is important to keep married together in this truth and this statement. Um, We get this interaction in chapter 3 as well between John the Baptist's disciples and Jesus. Jesus about the baptisms happening. Uh, In essence, John's disciples were concerned that those coming to be baptized were choosing Jesus rather than John to baptize them. And they're complaining, saying, John, what do we do? Everyone who's coming to this place to be baptized is going to Jesus and not to us. Uh, And so John, and this is where you get... This full picture, this clear picture of John's understanding of his position, uh, where he just makes a statement, he must increase, I must decrease. And so he says, don't be, don't be, in essence, a paraphrase, Aaron's paraphrase, is don't be upset about this. I must, my ministry is going to decrease because his ministry is going to increase. Um, and it shows the awareness of what he was sent to do in preparing the way for Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, at the end, we get a little, little discourse of chapter three here. Uh, about Jesus being the one from heaven, affirming him as the son of God uh, by the John as he's discussing it with his his disciples. Um, and you see this, this baton being passed in this moment between John the Baptist and Jesus where John has done his job coming close to the fulfilling his role so Jesus can take the baton and move on. So you see that transition happening here in this baptism moment. Um, in chapter four, uh, we get in the verses, in the first 45 verses, we have a shift in the story where Jesus is walking through Samaria uh, and ends up talking to a woman at the well. Uh, and, and here's the thing that I really want to try and do this year as we're reading through this plan is there's a lot of content just to be transparent with you. Um, but my goal is to take one or two stories and really kind of draw a little bit deeper into each of them. So that way it helps us understand some contextual realities to it. There's a book that I would highly recommend called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by Kenneth Bailey. Uh, it's a book that I have referred to earlier on in this podcast as I was working through it, um, but it's definitely a resource that I'm going to be using and leveraging in some of the context and conversations that we have through the Gospels because of how powerful it is. Uh, and just to understand what it, what some of the contextual realities are going on here. Uh, and so today, one of the things that I want to hit is and highlight for a few moments today is this this story of Jesus interacting with this woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, and, and it's important to realize one of the things that Jesus, you'll see hits in his ministry as he talks about the thing that makes someone unclean is not external, but it's out of what's internal. And so because that's Jesus's understanding of unclean versus clean, which is an Old Testament understanding, but also carried into the New Testament, culturally speaking for the Jewish population and the Jewish world religion, um, he understood that being clean was what was inside of an individual, not what was ex- exterior making one unclean. Uh, and so because of that, he walked straight through the shortest route through Samaria to get where he was going and stops in Samaria. There are, there is, is Samaritans were viewed as half-breeds. They were viewed as less than uh, Jews did not associate, did not talk to, did not even come close. It would be unclean if they had conversations, if they were in the same place. So Jews would walk around. Uh, Samaria, they would never walk through it. Um, but because Jesus understood cleanliness was an internal reality and not an external, he walked straight through it. Um, and, and so he took that route. And then he talks to this woman at the well. Uh, and there's a few things culturally going on here uh, that 
makes this this encounter where Jesus stops at this well with this woman in the heat of the day, by the way, uh, culturally speaking, all of the women of the village would go out together to get water from the well and then go back home together. Uh, so this woman being at the well by herself was culturally meaning and implying that she was a pariah, that she was well known to be someone who was not of reputable circumstance and she shouldn't be associated with. So she comes out on her own in the heat of the day because then she won't be uh, persecuted or tormented or uh, even potentially assaulted or attacked and from these other women where they made fun of her and things like that. So she came out in the heat of the day to draw water because she needed water to survive on. This was a daily practice. Uh, So Jesus shows up in the heat of the day, stops at the well with this woman, uh, and he immediately in stopping to talk to this woman, he breaks the social taboo uh, of speaking to women, let alone the Samaritan woman, but you don't speak to women, especially in a place without people or witnesses present. So he already shatters that, that cultural norm by having a conversation with the Samaritan woman. Um, Jesus ignores in this moment 500 years of hostility that existed between the Jews and Samaritans. Uh, Jesus in, in even says, hey, I need a drink of water. He humbles himself to request her services. Women were supposed to serve. They were like they were supposed to do what they were needed to do, but it was out of obligation and societal position. Jesus would never request, should never have requested the need of, for help because it was not culturally acceptable from a man for a man to do that. Um, but he requests her help. Uh, and in doing so, um, by asking her for help, asking her to draw him water, uh, it actually elevates her self-worth. And as you get into the story in John chapter four here, you see that her worth is not very high in regards to the cultural standing. Uh, but by asking her for help, it elevates her worth because only the strong are able to give to others. Uh, and so there's this dynamic going on. You see in this discourse that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman, he refers to the gift of God. And he says, if you would know to the gift of God that is before you, you would have responded differently because she's kind of at an odds, kind of shocked, kind of like, why are you talking to me? You're not of Samaria. You're a Jew. You're not supposed to talk to me. Uh, why are you having this conversation? So she kind of was back on her heels a bit. And so Jesus refers to the gift of God, which is then directly challenging the culture at the time, because in ancient culture, whether Jews or Samaritans or Muslims, uh, they all they put the gift of God anchoring to the law of Moses or uh, the book of Moses and the prophets. And so the gift of God was perceived to have been on the Quran. That that's a gift of God. God is that's how the, the that culture that religion believes and sees it to be a gift of God. Yet Jesus was realigning uh, this idea of the gift of God back to Himself. He is the fulfillment of the covenant. He is the covenant, not the book. Uh, And so when Jesus says to this woman, you're actually thinking the gift of God is the law of Moses, I'm actually the gift of God because I fulfill the covenant. I am the new covenant and my blood is a new. And so he's drawing this connection back to who he is. Um, We see also through this discourse that Jesus proves um, to be who we know him to be as the Messiah. Uh, And the woman at the well engages in multiple levels of dialogue peaking at this moment where she said, where Jesus says, Hey, go call your husband. She's like, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband. And you've had five and the one you're with isn't even your husband now, which is allusions to adultery uh, because she is not married to the guy, but the guy she's with, there's something going on there. That's extracurricular, so to speak. Uh, and so there's this, the moment he calls her out on this, she says, Oh, I perceive you to be a prophet. So then we shift into this theological discussion 
And Jesus doesn't rebuke her for this conversation. He actually, he, he doesn't celebrate, but he supports her, her, her position as a theologian in this conversation by simply engaging in it. Uh, and so she shifts the conversation to this idea of worship. Uh, Jesus treats her as this serious theologian, engages in the conversation, and then elevating her again, which is, again, another way to value and show merit and worth for this woman from Samaria. Uh, it ends, and this was in- interesting. I don't know if I picked this up before. Maybe I have in years past. Um, but we see uh, that in verse 25 to 26, the woman said to him that I know that the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. And so while on one hand we see Jesus not wanting to reveal himself to his to the, to the people of Jerusalem, to the people he's ministering to in Capernaum or Cana, in this moment with this woman, he actually reveals his, his identity as the Messiah in a very subtle, simple way. And as soon as he says this, we get this in, in chapter four, we see that the disciples show up and are surprised to see him talking to a woman because again, taboo, it would be tap, it would be tap, viewed as taboo if, um, if you're talking to a woman in a place where there's nobody else around, an uninhabited place. Um, even if it's of a public setting, but it's uninhabited, no one's around. So they're surprised by this, They, but they didn't ask what she's doing or why she's there. Uh, and it says that in this moment, the woman leaves her jar, goes back into town, and then she tells the people everything she heard and encountered, and then invited to, them to come see and, and, and even ask the question to them, could this really be the Messiah? Uh, all the while, the disciples are a little dumbfounded that he isn't hungry uh, because that was part of where they had gone is to get him food. And he says, I have food that you don't know about. My food is to do the will of the Father. Uh, and so he had this incredible moment where he's breaking barriers and building bridges into a community of people that have had 500 years of hostility. And he shows up to this woman and this woman has this encounter. And she goes back to, into the town and it says that the many Samaritans showed up and many believed in him and they stayed there two days because of it and many more believed. And I think this is probably one of the most profoundly beautiful passages or portions of this passage where it says the Samaritans told the woman, this is my paraphrase, uh, but they don't believe in Jesus anymore because of what the woman said, but they actually heard for themselves and really believe him to be the savior of the world. And so it's this incredible passage, culturally speaking, what's happening in this moment. It's not just a simple discourse of, hey, woman, give me a, a drink of water. Why are you asking me to give you a drink of water? Uh, we'll go call your husband. If you knew the gift of God, I, I, you would you would give me water. Let me tell you about the, the water that you'll drink that you'll never thirst. There's a whole bunch of cultural things happening that Jesus is establishing, again, the, the call for all humanity, for all mankind to come and know that he is the Messiah and he is the Savior of the world. It's the John 3, 16, 17 passage only magnified in the, in the city of Samaria. And so now we shift into uh, the book of Luke. We'll also hit Mark and Matthew. This is kind of the parallel accounts of the same issue or the same context going on. Uh, We find that John the Baptist at this point is arrested in Luke chapter 3, verse 19 to 20. Uh, We're drawn back here, and this is where Herod gets rebuked by John the Baptist because he has taken his brother's wife as his own, uh, and they get offended and in turn lock up John the Baptist. Uh, Mark chapter one, verses 14 to 15, they focus is shifting entirely to Jesus now where he hears about John the Baptist, um, has been preaching. He hears about John the Baptist being arrested, but then takes on uh, the same preaching that John the Baptist has been doing and saying the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the good news. Uh, And then the Matthew account, 
Also, we find Jesus becoming aware of John's arrest, and then he heads to Galilee, lives in Capernaum, uh, and fulfilling yet another prophecy of the coming Messiah, and he continues to preach the message of repenting and being baptized. Uh, we then will jump into Luke, and this is where, I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. I guess I'll stop for a second. This is going to be like rapid fire because a lot of these passages are parallel accounts, but we're jumping from each gospel. Um, a lot of the, 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 the John passages of scripture will be uh, kind of one-offs. They won't follow in a line with the synoptic gospels, as Evan has already talked about. But uh, this is kind of where we get rapid fired for this part of the podcast. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 28 is a genealogy. Uh, genealogy, I guess is what I'm supposed to say. Uh, but it draws, it kind of parallels Matthew's genealogy a bit. Uh, but really is just a family line all the way back to Abraham and then also a son of God, which is just tying back in who Christ is and showing that he is not just a son of God, but he comes down the family line that he was prophesied to have come down. Um, and Ch- John chapter four, the, and we get eight verses, nine verses of uh, what I'm referring to as the one o'clock miracle, which I'm totally stealing from a kid's book that we have in my house. Uh, but it tells the story of a dad whose son is sick. Uh, who hears about the work that Jesus is doing, the miracles he's performing, and he decides to go all the way um, from Capernaum to Cana, uh, Cana to Capernaum, uh, and go meet Jesus and invite Jesus back to come to his house to heal his son. He shows up, he finds Jesus. Jesus, in essence, he says, come with me, my son is really sick. Uh, And Jesus, in essence, just says, go, your son will live. And he takes Jesus at his word based upon the things he's heard. Uh, And then heads all the way back to his son, finds his son. Uh, The next day at one o'clock, his servants come ahead uh, or meet him partially the way there. They find out his son as well. He asks, well, what time of day did that happen? He says the fever broke. His servants say the fever broke at one o'clock. And that's when the father realizes that's when I talked to Jesus. And Jesus said, my son will be well. Uh, So then we get this incredible miracle that takes place in John chapter four, verse 46 to 54. Uh, In Luke chapter four. Verses 16 to 30, we see that Jesus comes to Nazareth where he was raised. He enters the synagogue. He is handed a scroll, which is Isaiah 61.1, which fills another prophecy about the coming Messiah. He engages in teaching the crowd. And it's interesting to watch because the crowd is going to go from amazed at his teachings to flipping a switch and being angry because of what he's teaching. Uh, in essence, because Jesus challenges their understanding of scripture, he refers to Elijah's and Elisha's ministries, which if you're, th- if you're thinking for a second, well, why would they get mad about him talking about Elijah and Elisha? Well, they get mad <laughs> because the stories that the pro- that Jesus shares about the prophet's time uh, was provision and focus on, on God's providing and accepting the Gentiles. Um, and in turn implies that God's acceptance of the Gentiles and his re- it implies the acceptance of the Gentiles and the rejection of Israel. Uh, so the crowd, the Pharisees are angry. They flip a switch. They drive him to a hillside where they intend to push him over. Uh, but it says that he just walked right back through the crowd because his time was not up yet. So this incredible moment, kind of a funny, uh, amazed versus angry moment happens. Um, we get some calling of the disciples here. Uh, in Mark chapter one, we see the calling of Simon and his brother Andrew when they're fishing, as well as James and John, um, all of which left their nets to follow Jesus. Matthew four eighteen to twenty two is a parallel account of that same calling of those same callings for those individuals. Uh, we get this kind of the synagogue deliverance uh, encounter where Jesus is still in Capernaum. And he's back in the synagogue teaching and amazing the people with his authority. 
Uh, and then a man with an unclear spirit, spirit speaks up and says, what do you want from us? We know who you are. Uh, and this is where, again, go back to that John passage for a second with the woman at the well. He rebukes the demon, calls him out because they're yelling, we know who you are. And he sh- he shuts him up, calls him out uh, because he doesn't want this recognition to go out yet because the Jewish population, because he knows what's in them, what's in them and how they're going to respond. It doesn't, it doesn't prevent that because news about Jesus spreads uh, and, and people are going to show up in a few minutes. We'll see that here just in a short moment. Um, Luke chapter four, again, is a parallel account in the synoptic account of this, this demoniac, this demon possessed man being delivered in the synagogue after Jesus's teaching. Uh, Mark 1, 29 to 34, again, is a parallel, but I'm going to read this passage. Um, and it says, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about her. Uh, told him about her at once. So he went to her, took her by the hand, raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. When evening came after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So Jesus is still trying to guard this this identity of uh, of his divinity, uh, but we see the news about him beginning to spread and beginning to be famous. Um, and this healing that comes after the synagogue was Peter's mo- mother-in-law, uh, significant moments. Um, and then in Matthew 8, 14 to 17, we have the same account of Peter's mother-in-law being healed after the synagogue, uh, demoniac deliverance. Um, in Luke chapter 4, um, we have, again, a parallel account, but the demons were shouting. They, Luke adds that the demons were shouting, you are the son of God as they're being delivered, which is kind of for me sitting in the seat I'm in now. It's a little comical to see that play out. Um, but that's it, the encounter that happens uh, in that moment. It, we move into Mark chapter one, uh, where Jesus is getting ready to leave and people are coming for him. But in Mark chapter one, we see that he heads away to pray. Uh, and the disciples come looking for him. We also see the same similar accounts in Luke and Matthew and those two passages we're going to read this week. Um, and it, they say, hey, everyone's been searching for you. And he just said, hey, it's time to move on to other villages. It's time to go preach elsewhere because that's why I came. And so he goes into Galilee preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons is what we're told in Mark. Uh, Luke 4 verse 42 to 44 is, is a similar account as well as Matthew 4, 23 to 25. It does add in this Matthew passage though that the crowds were following him from neighboring towns and villages. So in other words, there's this mass of group of people showing up and following him wherever he goes. Um, and then we get in Luke chapter five, verses one through 11, we see the crowds were following him and he's standing. And this is somewhat of a familiar passage for us too, because he's standing on the shore. The crowds are pressing in on him. He sees two boats, one of which belonged to Simon. Uh, and he says, he jumps in the boat and says, Simon, push offshore a bit. And so he can teach. Simon is just coming back from a long day. So while Simon was called as a disciple, this is kind of an interesting thing that I've, I'm trying to understand and wrap my head around a bit. I don't have all of the answers to it yet, um, but he is already called to be a disciple, but yet he's still fishing. And so there, there isn't this full handoff yet or this full bought in. I'm following Jesus as the rabbi and I'm a student of his until this moment where Jesus shows up again. He's standing before Simon as they're coming in from a long night's work. And Jesus says, hey, push offshore. Simon kind of like we've been working all night. Uh, he pushes offshore and Jesus is teaching them. And then he turns to Simon and says, hey, cast your nets down. He's like, we worked all night and caught nothing. 
but because you tell me to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be obedient. He throws his nets down and it says they hauled in the largest load of fish. He had to call his buddies over to come help him draw, draw drag the, 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 the net of fish to shore. And then it says that they left. At the end of it, he says, follow me. Uh, and it's this in Luke chapter five. And I'm going to read this. It said, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at his knees and said, go away from me because I'm a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those who were with, with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. Uh, they Then they brought all the boats to land, left everything and followed him. And so you see this, this calling of Simon earlier on, as we've already seen. And then you see this dynamic of him back fishing because he's, there's, there's uncertainty until this moment where he falls at Jesus' feet and knees and says, forgive me. And, and Jesus calls him and says, from now on, you're going to, you're going to catch people. You're not going to be a fisherman. You're going to be a fisher of man to use the phrase that we've heard so many times as a kid growing up, Evan and I. Uh, it's we, true. We come on and uh, Mark continues the conversation. Jesus is continuing to do healing and the miraculous. Uh, there's this healing of uh, a man with leprosy as well as a paralytic man. Um, in Mark chapter 1, verse 40 to 45, we see a man with leprosy shows up. Jesus moved with compassion, heals him, but then tells him not to tell anyone. Yet the man did what I think anybody would do if they got held with leprosy and proclaimed what Jesus did. Matthew 8. Again, parallel account. I feel like I'm going to be saying that a ton today. Luke chapter 5 is a parallel account, uh, but it says that the crowds continued to grow and he often withdrew to pray. Is this recharging moment for him after all the miraculous things he showed in his humanity, his need for the Holy Spirit to continue to fill him fresh and new to do the work God has called him to do. Mark chapter 2, it shifts and we hear uh, that Jesus goes home, that the crowds hear that he went home. He sh- they show up at the house, fill his house, and then we get a familiar passage of a man who's a paralytic who's being carried on a stretcher by his four friends. They bring him to Jesus. He couldn't get healed or they couldn't get in, so they went up on the roof, dug a hole, lowered him in. He was healed by Jesus because of their faith. Mark, Matthew and Luke, Matthew 9, 1 through 8, and Luke 17 to 26 are a parallel accounts of the same uh same account of, of the paralytic's healing, um, but he, in these moments, he is rebuking the religious leaders because they were upset that he and, and annoyed that Jesus is forgiving sins. Um, and there's, in essence, they the, the one tension that Jesus wrestles with a lot is this this idea of healing on the Sabbath, this idea of forgiving sins, and the fact that the Pharisees are missing the point and missing the fact that he is the Messiah, he is who he says he is, and he is God's son. Uh, so you see Jesus's rebuke in using different instances and encounters like this to then present and and challenge the Pharisees' beliefs and understanding of who he is. Um, we get in Matthew, cha- Mark chapter two, as we continue on this week, um, the calling of Matthew or Levi. Uh, and then we also uh, get this picture that he, um, in Matthew two, two, we get this picture that he was... Um, teaching them. And then in verse 14, it says, in the passing by, he saw Levi at the toll booth. He said, follow me. He got up and followed him. Then he's at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with his disciples. Um, they were, for though for there were many who were following him is what it says. The scribes were Pharisees, saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. And he says, why? And he asked, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus' famous phrase here is, it's not those who are well that need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Uh, and we see the parallel accounts in Matthew 9, 9 through 13, as well as Luke 5, 27 to 32. And these are significant moments because Jesus is revealing his intent and his arrival is that all might be saved and all might come to know the hope and the Jesus, uh, the hope of Jesus. And he's challenging the religious leader's perspective of, I don't need a doctor. I know everything. I'm good. Um, and this, this story where a tax collector, and tax collectors were the lowest of the lows. Uh, in the New Testament, even the categorical sinners and then tax collectors had their own category, which was lower than just regular sinners, so to speak. Um, and so tax collectors were never viewed as high class or high valued people. They're actually viewed as more pariah and outcast driven within the Pharisaic perspective. Um, we get parallel accounts in Matthew 2 or Mark 2 and Mark 9, 14 to 17. Uh, and this is where Jesus is questioned about fasting and why his disciples don't fast. Um, and it's fascinating to read Jesus's perspective because it's the idea of if if you're at a wedding feast and the groom is present, are, the, are you going to ask the guests to fast? And he, in essence, paints this picture that I'm the groom and you are now in a, in a time and in, in an era where I'm among you. So don't fast. Don't spend time fasting and but spend time celebrating and rejoicing. Um, and he challenges this tension that exists um, in this picture of fasting. Um, Jesus wasn't opposed to fasting. It's one of the things to understand here, but he was using the story to reveal the time that they were currently in. Uh, and so we see even this conversation, he, he talks about an old, old, a wine skin. You don't put old wine in a new wine skin because the, the new wine skin will burst. You don't put new wine in an old wine skin because that will ruin that as well. But you put new wine in a new wine skin, you have old wine in an old wine skin because that's what they're meant to be. Um, and it's just this picture of mixing the old and the new. He's fulfilling the old covenant and providing a new covenant. That's the picture going on here when Jesus is alluding to the um, to the, the the wedding feast, the fasting feast, and then also the wine and the celebration of the fast of fasting, but also the covenant and the new covenant. He's playing laying the foundation for the ministry to come. And even as we get ready to read next week, we'll read more of his work and more of the ministry that he does, more of the miracles he performs. But we end this week as we're reading through this wedding feast picture of why don't your disciples fast? This is why they don't fast. And it's not about mixing the old with the new, but it's about understanding the times and leaning in and being prepared for the covenant that's about to be renewed and fulfilled in him. And so that's where the old covenant and that's where the old, uh, the week's reading plan ends is there this week. So that's kind of it. A very fast paced, quick hit. Oh yeah, but there's a ton this week to read, so enjoy it. Well, before we wrap it up for this week, let's talk about what we learned today. Yeah, I don't know how to pick one. <laughs> like, there's so <laughs> there is so much uh, going on in all these different passages. I feel like it's going to be this week, every week with the Gospels, where everything is going to be so freaking applicable to our lives. Um, for me, I guess the first thing that just comes to mind is just remembering what Christ coming into the world means. Um, because that's the majority of my passages that I was reading. It's it's the ministry of Jesus beginning. And it's remembering that God loves us so much that he was willing to come to earth, become man and, and suffer and die for our sins. And I think sometimes as Christians, we just kind of, because we know that it's at the center of our faith, yeah. we kind of just ignore it a little bit, or at least don't hold on to it as tightly. But I think if there's anything to take away from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it is remembering the love that God has for us. Yeah, that's really good. Um, for me, I think it's it's as we're reading through, there's so many historical and cultural things going at play. 
um, that I think is really important just to remember the the gospel is for all mankind. Like God's intent in setting apart a people for himself, as we read in the Old Testament, was so that all the nations might be blessed. And Jesus is ushering in and fulfilling that hope and that promise. So you'll see a lot of focus and a lot of intentional uh, ministry and miracle and uh, moments where Jesus is engaging the Gentile world, where it's not just about the Jewish world anymore, but it is about the Gentile world. Um, and and he's breaking down barriers and setting a very, very clean, powerful, true gospel for all mankind. Uh, and I think it's just a reminder like for us about understanding that same heartbeat exists for, for us today and, and the reality that we are called to model the heart of Christ. And, and the woman at the well is probably the most prominent picture in my head but even the man with leprosy. Jesus met with people who were broken and needed to be accepted and belonging, and that's what he came to do. And so I think it's really important to remember that heartbeat behind everything he did. Well, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.